You can't judge a book by its cover, right? But a good cover can make you want to read a book. And that's how I discovered The People We Keep by Alison Larkin. It was the beautiful cover of the book that caught my eye. And after reading the first paragraph, I was like, oh, I am in. Sometimes that is really all it takes. And I loved this book, Kelsey. And after finishing it, I knew we wanted to talk with Alison Larkin. Alison Larkin is the internationally best-selling author of the novels Stay, Why Can't I Be You, and Swimming for Sunlight. Her short fiction has been published in the Somerset Review and Slice, and nonfiction in the anthologies I'm Not the Biggest Bitch in the Relationship and Author in Progress. She lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with her husband, Jeremy. Kelsey and I are delighted to have Allison Larkin as our guest today. Welcome to the first 50 pages, Allison. Thank you so much, Jen and Kelsey. I'm really happy to be talking with you. We're pretty excited ourselves. Oh, thank you. (laughs) So for listeners who haven't read The People We Keep, can you tell us a little bit about the story? Yes. uh, The People We Keep is about 16-year-old folk singer April Sawicki, who's growing up in a dead-end town in a motorless motorhome that her dad won in a poker game. And after she gets into a fight with her dad, she realizes that her life could be so much bigger than it is and that she's tired of being where she's from. And she steals a car and hits the road. And then the book follows her for about three years while she's finding herself in the world. Some of the, like, we talk oftentimes in appeal terms for books. So your characters are really authentic. And your storyline really is a character-driven story. Um, You started writing this book really quite a while ago. Um, Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the progress or, or how the characters sort of blossomed for you? Yes. Um, I was working on my first book, Stay, which I wrote as Allie Larkin. And um, I, you know, I hadn't been published before, so no one was expecting anything from me, but I was in a writing group and we had eight pages a week due. And I was working on my eight pages for group and I had a playlist going of songs that I liked. And I had um, a Dar Williams song called Iowa played. And then a song by the Waterboys called This is the Sea played. And something about those two songs, um, the Dar Williams song, I just started thinking about what it would be like to be a folk singer and what that traveling musician life is. And then um, uh, This is the Sea has lyrics about like these things that you keep, you better throw them away. And um, this idea of like, that was the river and this is the sea that like you, you came from this small place and you go to this big place. And for some reason, all of that just swirled together in my brain. And I had this idea of this folk singer who, you know, I could see her with her long hair and her guitar and her struggle. And it was like a person calling to you from the corner of the room saying like, Hey, look at me. Uh, I wrote, almost 6,000 words about her right in the middle of what I was trying to do. I I took those pages to my writing group. And um, I just, since then, I've had this sense that I had to write this story. It was like, 
April was in the woods and I had to write her out of it. You know, I had to, I had to give her a good story. I had this sense of needing to complete something for her, um, which I know kind of sounds crazy, <laughs> but no, it, it's just all. what it was. And um, because I, I had such a strong sense of that, I also had such a strong sense of not wanting to compromise on the story and that not wanting to compromise made this a book 15 years in the making of trying to find my people to tell this story. Uh, and I'm so lucky that I did because this book is exactly what I needed it to be. It's, I feel like it's what April needed it to be. And you know, I mentioned earlier, I loved this book. I Thank you. like really, I, um, had mentioned in a previous episode, we were talking with Julia Whalen and I said, I don't often get emotional when I read a book, but I had tears at parts of the story because April is just such a great character because I really felt as a reader that I had a connection to her in the story. And it isn't at all because our stories align in any way. Like I do not have shared experiences that April has in the story, but there was something about how you wrote the book. And I think it's because I was able to look at April through my own life experience um, and to kind of see from a different perspective where her choices were taking her. And I cared so much about her. And and she really, you know, I championed for her, but she also broke my heart sometimes too. <laughs> How, how did April's character evolve over those 15 years for you? It's so interesting. I mean, firstly, I, I do want to say I'm so excited that you spoke with Julia Whalen because she's uh, such a, I mean, she, she narrated my first two audiobooks and then we're back together for this one. And, and she's just, it's amazing to hear her bring my characters to life. Like that's one of the great joys in my life and getting to hear her read April is absolutely incredible. And she's such a good writer too. So I'm just very excited about that. But, um, in terms of, of April as a character, it's interesting because I've always had a very clear sense of her, but, you know, I'm 44 now. And so in, in the 15 years that I was writing this book, my perspective on everything has changed. And I think realizing the intense sadness of April's situation where she couldn't quite see it because when you're young, you don't have the perspective to understand your circumstances the same way. And, and that is in some ways such a beautiful survival mechanism. If you don't know that the way that you're living is not ideal, you know, if you can't see that there's a better way for you, it does help you plot along. So, you know, you can't really feel sorry for yourself if you don't think there's better. So that was that was an interesting evolution to have with her in the beginning when I was writing it. You know, I, I recognized some of the sadness, but as I got older, I saw it more clearly, and and it actually became a, a harder book to write in some ways um, because I I wanted to do it right. I had the sense of wanting to do it right and not making not putting my feelings of April's circumstances into April's feelings of her circumstances, but also allowing the reader to see more than, you know, April was necessarily aware of. And it is in first person, present tense. So that's an interesting tool to play with. 
Um, and it comes down to her, her sensory experiences and, and her observations, even when she can't always connect the dots on her observations to come to a resolution about them. And great storytelling kind of from my perspective, and especially here with this book with the great characterization. You know, it can almost act as a mirror to your own life experiences, allowing you to see um, the consequences of your own choices, but in a very safe way. Um, and throughout this book, I found myself reflecting on the people that I've kept throughout my life. And I think that was part of what made it um, that emotional journey for me, reading this story, reading April's character. I think that, you know, April's circumstances are, you know, her life is different from mine. There's definitely, I think the, the feelings are real, but the facts are, are made up, you know. Um, but I think one of the great struggles as a human being is to not only find love from the people around us, but feel like we're worthy of accepting it. And that I think it's just one of the greatest human universals, you know. So it's an interesting arena to play in. Um, and it's a connecting thing. And I think, you know, just just getting, I think I had to free up something in myself a little bit to, you know, to admit that to myself about myself, that that's one of my great struggles is, is that idea of, wow, I love this person. This person's so great. Am I good enough for them? Like, do I deserve, if they, if they know all of me, will they love me? And, you know, I think, I think that's an interesting thing in terms of evolving with a book too, over this amount of time is, is just, just my own, my own process in life and, and being able to see why these people would love April, because I have a better understanding of why the people I love, love me. So we've kind of touched on April a lot, which is great. You know, she's the main character. You know, we want to really <laughs> dive into her. Um, but an element that I thought was really interesting, because you don't necessarily see it in a ton of fiction, is experiencing homelessness. You know, she's experiencing it as a teen in the beginning. Um, and this part of the story, you know, really kind of gives us pause or, you know, we talk about it a lot in different library meetings is, you know, because every day in the public library, really anywhere in this country, you know, it's not unique to our city or even our own library that we see people of all ages experiencing homelessness. And kind of after, you know, hearing what April goes through, you know, I know Jen and I talked about this, that, you know, you really kind of have to like sit with it for a while and kind of think about, you know, how to even think about homelessness or how to even, you know, understand it and be, I, I don't even yeah, know. Yeah, <laughs> and to, to think about the kind of people that we want to be for the people that we encounter daily who are experiencing these things. Um, and, you know, April really does encounter throughout the story the some of the best versions of humanity and also some of the worst versions of humanity. And, um, you know, specifically, this is kind of a side note, as I was in the middle of this book, um, I was working at the library and we had a young man who came in and was asking for some different things. And um, it came out that he was homeless in the community. And, you know, it really 
made me think about his situation in a little bit different light, being in the middle of the story. Um, and it made me want to really be like one of the good people, you know, <laughs> the helpful people. The um, Because, yeah, we do experience that every day. Yeah. And I mean, that is that is an amazing thing to to look at what somebody else is going through as a situation that you can show up and and help, you know, that you can show up and be the best that you can. And I mean, that is an amazing thing about libraries, too, is that they are absolutely there for everybody. Um, and, and that is a great comfort and a great resource. Um, you know, I one of the one of the concepts that I was really dealing with just as a person in general, at one point, I was listening to a lot of Brene Brown, and she talks about um, the concept of like, are people doing the best that they can? And, and I think in dealing with that concept, especially in this book, uh, really changed me as a person and how I think about things because everybody is a product of their circumstances. And if you think that um, if people really are doing the best that they can, um, you know, we do have to look at a lot of things differently. We have to look at homelessness differently. We have to look at poverty differently. We have to look at I mean, we have to look at everything differently. If people are just doing the best they can, and maybe we can be the element that that adds a new trajectory, you know, or even just some comfort, I think I think that's a, a beautiful way to start thinking. Like, I'm, I'm grateful for the experience of my mind starting to head in that direction. It makes the world a nicer place, really. I'll second that I listen to Brene Brown a lot and she does make you think about things all the time. Like you're like, I think I'm finally grasping what she's saying. And then she introduces a new concept or something. And you're like, Oh, like my mind's blown. And then I have to like think about it for the next week of just, oh, the can work I grasp is never this? over, right? It's We're always over. doing the work. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's not just April that really shines in this book as an amazing character. Um, I really feel like your secondary characters in the story are fantastic. Um, I love Margot. Um, I love Ethan. I think that, um, you know, my wish for is that everyone has an Ethan in their life, like someone to, to you just show up and be present and, you know, for them no matter what. And this concept of found family is one of those themes that really runs through the story and um yeah just kind of going back to characters do your secondary characters reflect elements of people that you've kept along the way absolutely um you know they're not nobody's nobody's specifically one person you can't there's no translation that's direct in any way shape or form but um, that whole concept of found family. I, I'm so lucky to have truly amazing friends. You know, I'm, I'm so lucky to have friends who have, who have been in my life for a very long time and friends that, that I met in the most random ways who just have completely changed my life. And, um, and, and so that's something I, you know, that's the way I see the world. So that's the way that it happened in my book. Um, but you know, I can see Margot and Ethan and and Carly are are uh, 
conglomeration of the the feelings that I've had for certain people in my life. Um, Margot, especially, I you know I worked in restaurants and bars when I was younger. Um, I worked answering phones in a company at one point. I had all these um, older women who really took me under their wing. And also in my writing group when I was living in Rochester, New York, uh, my friend Joan, who isn't who isn't like Margot in in most ways. Uh, she was actually a law librarian. Um, she passed away a couple years ago, but she she just took me under her wing so much and and so kindly showed me the good parts of myself and and helped me figure out how to be an adult and had so much wisdom and perspective to share. And, and um, because I was working on this book for so long, uh, she, she was a part of it too. You know, she, she helped me with editing when, when I got feedback on the book that, uh, you know, what if April were nicer or what if she stayed in the same place and had friends her own age, Joan would, uh, would, would read the book again and say, no, I don't know what they're talking about. You need to do what you need to do. Um, and, and so I think, you know, Margot's a little bit of a tribute to her, even though they're just very, very different people, <laughs> but, yeah. but there, there's that heart there of the people who come in and, and just they're themselves and they're kind and they're persistent and they change your life. And I think that's what helps to make them so authentic in the story. Um, So obviously place is, you know, also a very important part of this story and kind of almost becomes a character in and of itself. You know, I I know both John and I are kind of like, "Um, we should look up to see if Little River is an actual town. (laughs) (laughs) Little River is not an actual town. It is is kind of an amalgam of of a bunch of towns that I've visited. I, I grew up in a town that was very small when I grew up, but it was outside of New York City, so it had a different feel. Um, but it was that thing where everybody kind of knew everybody. And then um, when I moved upstate and I lived in Rochester, New York, I got to visit a bunch of those smaller towns outside of Rochester and Buffalo and got a feel for that. But it is, it is a town of my own making, mostly because I... I wanted the freedom to to tell it like I saw it, and I wouldn't want to do that to anybody's town. You know, Ithaca, New York, obviously, though, is a real place and one of my favorite places in the whole world. So I wanted to write Ithaca the way it is. One of the other things that Kelsey and I were talking about um, is the 1990s as historical fiction, mm-hmm. I know. <laughs> which makes me feel, you know, my age. But, uh-huh. but yeah. I- so I feel like, you know, the story wouldn't really work in the same way in another time period. So as yeah. much as it pains me to think about the 1990s as historical fiction. You know, I feel like it had to be, you know, set before smartphones and GPS and text messages and social media. Yes, yes. I, I think, like, even even just if April could have had MapQuest, if she could have gone to a library <laughs> and printed out maps, uh-huh. you know, that would have changed everything about everything. She would have, I think she would have gone much further on her road travels. I think, um, 
I think there's just a lot of things that would have been different, even if she could have sent an email to someone when she stopped into the library, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to keep it there. It's also when I was in Ithaca, so I wanted to have that texture. And I did wonder if it was going to get uh, get categorized as historical fiction. I mean, I know if you set um, a film in like 2010 now, it's, it's a period piece because you have to change all the you know, all the technology and all the elements oh, you can't have to me. <laughs> anachronisms. Yeah. It's very, very strange, but so, but it does, it is this funny thing. I'm amused by it and like, it almost hurts my feelings, but then why would it hurt my feelings? We're just the age we are. Yeah. And yeah. age is a good thing. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> but you know, it, it, it was interesting to think about the story through that lens. Like, you know, someone younger might think, well, why didn't she just send a text message, you know, it, that would be your natural yes. reaction. But, you know, there were limitations to what she had access to um, in the world. And it really does shape the story. Yes, especially even even coming from Little River. And I saw something at one point where someone had mentioned that she just seemed unbelievably uh, naive. And I thought we were all unbelievably naive. Yeah. Like, you know, we if you think about how a child functions in the world now versus how we functioned in the world back then, you only knew what people told you or what you could find in a book. You were completely, or in a magazine, um, or what you could hear on the radio. And, you know, I grew up getting New York City radio stations, but some of the people that I went to Ithaca with came from smaller towns and and they had like local radio that did not play any of the music that I had been listening to. We were so separate and segmented. And and I thought that was fascinating to play with. Yeah. Well, and speaking of music, um, you know, music is such an important part of this story of who April is. Um, and I, I really love that you make her um, a folk singer because it really is, it, it makes her even more vulnerable, you know, when she's on stage. Yeah. Because those live, you know, as I don't know this, I don't sing or I'm not musically inclined, <laughs> but I, but you do sing and play guitar. Is that right, Allison? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. So, so I think you would understand like the like the rawness of yeah. you know being on stage, you know, the level of intimacy that you have with an audience. Um and I you know we are in Iowa, right? So I had never heard speaking of being from a small town and not ever hearing music, I don't know. I had never heard the Jar Williams song, Iowa. And so I had, of, of course, you know, Google it because we can and <laughs> listen to the song. And I was just like, how have I grown up living here? And I didn't know about this beautiful song. And I watched a live performance. And isn't it gorgeous? It, it is. And then, it, you know, then it made me think even more about live performance and music and vulnerability of that. And just music as storytelling. So no, yeah. that was just me talking about it. But I'd love to hear your, you know, kind of thoughts on why you incorporated that into the story. Um, I I grew up on a really steady diet of 
folk music. I was actually named after a Gordon Lightfoot song. And um, I, you know, I, I saw some, I saw a Gordon Lightfoot in concert. I, I saw, you know, like the Everly Brothers when I was younger. Um, I, I listened to a lot of Simon and Garfunkel, you know, all of that, James Taylor, Carol King. And then when I got to Ithaca, just on a chance, uh, one of my friends said, you got to come see this guy play. He's amazing. He plays on the subway in, in Boston all the time. And I just went down to the, you know, the little coffee house on campus and saw Peter Mulvey play and thought, and, and, you know, it was more contemporary folk music. And I thought, wow, this is exactly my music. Like, this is what I want to be listening to. And um, so I've been following his career since like 1995. I've been to so many of his shows now. And I think that's a huge part of it too, because he really embodies the classic folk singer in that, you know, he's, he's a modern day philosopher and he's thinking about the big concepts and the little concepts of life. And, and so that was just exciting. And then a lot of the music I listen to comes from people he's performed with too. Um, the lyrics at the opening of the book are from Chris Perica from a song called Compass Rose. Um, and I, I listen to Chris Perica so much. I think she's one of my favorite musicians. She's just absolutely brilliant. And uh, that song changed the trajectory of this book for me because when I was getting pressure to to change things, to make April nicer, to make this book fit in a neat little box. Um, I heard that song Compass Rose and kept listening to it. And she deals with the concept of a song, you know, she, she sings about, I know someday I'll offer up a song I was made to play. And I really got obsessed with those words and started thinking about that in terms of my book, that this was the book I was made to write. And if this was the book I was made to write, I just had to do it my way. Uh, so in so many different ways, music was a part of this book. And also, you know, my my past playing, I played a couple open mic nights when I was younger. I actually just posted a song that I wrote that's in the book that I had played at an open mic night when I was in my 20s. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I studied voice. So my experience with that is is definitely in the the visceral connections of April playing music, uh, but I'm not necessarily a musician per se. But I think that that music parallels writing, parallels painting. You know, in terms of that that vulnerability that you have to protect so that you can make the good work, and then you have to put it out there, and and do you try to stay vulnerable or do you put your armor on you know how do you how do you go out into the world as a creative person um, i feel like i took that so many very very <laughs> no, it was, directions but it was it was you know really a, a lot you mentioned the pressure to change your characters and to change your story to fit in a different mold um and so you, you did have challenges, you know, like you said, bringing this story, um, you know, to find, um, you know, an agent and a publisher to, you know, really support you and champion um, this book. And I think, you know, that's kind of like the nature of 
publishing, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. you have success, and we want you to replicate success. From some of the other things I've read, it sounds like you've really been able to surround yourself with you know, just really amazing women writers who have acted as mentors and friends to you. Can, can you talk a little bit about how that has helped you through this process too? Yes, absolutely. Uh, one of the one of the biggest gifts in my career is that when I was first starting out, Claire Cook invited me to be part of an online group that she was in at the time. And it's called the Fiction Writers Co-op. And it's it's been a revolving door to some extent, but we've we've kept strong at 50, 50 members. Um, and we all just kind of talk about what we're going through and support each other and cheer on when we have a book launch and um and so I've I've you know writing such a solitary thing but I've had co-workers this whole time um and and I've had people to talk with and and share my fears with and and my disappointments and you know it's it's a great thing to be able to be part of a team when you're a novelist. (laughs) So I'm very lucky for that. And I think that also just set me up to be a person who thinks of this, this existence as a writer that way, which is beautiful because I have all these friends who are novelists and I, you know, we swap manuscripts and we support each other and, and it makes everything so much better. Uh, I'm really thankful for that. And I think you also now get to be an example to others that it is possible you know it's not easy but it is possible um and one of the things I noticed on your website AllieLarkinWrites.com is you do have a writer resources tab yes um did you want to talk at all about that um yeah, I you know I, I put my query letter up there from from when I was submitting my first book because I wanted people to see an example, and I have links and some answers to questions. I also do sometimes take on a limited number of uh, manuscripts as as a developmental editor, uh, so there's information about that there too. But you know one of the things I just really I want to be a little bit transparent about the work behind the process. And also, you know, you mentioned that it's doable, but it's difficult. And the thing I think that's interesting about it is that so many of us think that the difficulty is telling us something about our our talent or our work's viability. And it's just hard because it's hard. And you just, you know, if you love something, you keep going. And then um, you'll find the right spot for your work. Like not everything is for everybody, but you're finding, you know, you're trying to build the people who are, who are for you. And, and I, I definitely, I don't, I don't ever want to see someone get discouraged for, you know, for, uh, on something that they, they love and they feel because the business can be brutal, but the business and the work are two separate things. And I think being in a creative profession by nature is very vulnerable yes. because, you know, there are critics and readers and, you know, you put your work out there and then people react to it. And that's a, I think that's a very vulnerable, and I think you just have to embrace that 
vulnerability and understand that rejection is part of it. And that, you know, that's probably a hard place to get to. It is one of the things that's, that's helped me so much. Like this book was such a good teacher in that. And, you know, I've, I've been so proud of my first three books too. I really do love them. Um, but this one, I, you know, I wasn't really on the same page with the people I had been working with. So I, I really had to fight for my vision and, and finding the right place for my vision. And what I realized is that when you create just for yourself. I mean, there was a point where I was writing this book where I thought, I'm just writing it for me. I'm not even going to try to sell it. It's just my book. I just need to do this. So I'm going to write it exactly the way I want to. And, you know, scrubbed out all the advice I'd taken that didn't fit. And I think that that makes you a little rejection proof. I, I wrote this book for me. So it's wonderful if you love it. And if you don't love it, then it's just not for you and that's okay. But I think when you try to bend yourself into somebody else's vision, then criticism hurts really badly. Um, but if you're, if, if you do something to try to get to a sense of rightness with it for yourself, then it's easier to, to just brush off somebody not liking it. It's like, okay, that's fine. There's plenty of things I don't, like too. We're all entitled yeah. to like things and not like things. And I have <laughs> one know? of those library standard learning things is um, for every book a reader. Mm-hmm. Yes. And one of those yes. famous library quotes yeah. that that's beautiful gets panted about all the time. Yeah. Um, were there any like reader reactions that have surprised you about the people we keep? I I am honestly surprised by how many people understand it on such a visceral level. I'm, I'm so honored by that. I've had books that did that for me. And so I'm, I'm just, I'm just awed. I'm so grateful. It makes the world feel like a friendlier place. It's like I put, I put my heart out there and other people said, yeah, that's what my heart feels like. Um, I'm, you know, I, I knew some people would feel like that. I'm, I, I don't know that I thought this was going to, because of what I'd been told over the years, I, I didn't know that this was going to be a book with such broad appeal. And I'm so thankful that it is. It's so, it's thrilling. It's absolutely thrilling. I feel like there are just kindred spirits everywhere. <laughs> you know, and it, it is a hopeful and moving story, even though there are difficult parts of the book. And, and, but I don't mean like difficult, it's very accessible to read, but some of the situations, you know, that April is in are, are, you know, they're like, it's not a rom-com, right? No, it is Um, not a rom-com. Yeah. By any means. And and this book just published in August of this year. So it is still finding its way into the hands um, and the hearts of readers and, yeah, we hope that you know some of our listeners today will um, decide that they want to spend some out. time with April. Yeah, thank um, you. I do hope so. I really do. Are you working on another book now, Allison, or do you get to take a break? I'm always working on something. One <laughs> of the things that I learned when I was writing this book is that I can write. You know, I wrote I wrote three books while I was writing this one, so I've learned that I can I can write more than one thing at a time, and that that 
jotting ideas down and stepping away is actually very helpful for my process. So I have, I actually have three things, like three other projects that I've been marinating and I'm, you know, adding to them and seeing which one will hit critical mass and take off. <laughs> well, wow. we will definitely keep our eyes peeled. So when you have time to read for pleasure, um, well, it doesn't sound like you have a lot of extra time, but when you do, um, what kind of story do you seek out? And would you mind sharing what you're currently reading or listening to? Sure. I, um, I, I don't have a lot of time, which is why I love audiobooks. So I listen to a lot of audiobooks. Um, I just... I just finished Apples Never Fall, which was excellent in audio. I also listen to a lot of nonfiction. I like a lot of like psychology books and um, you know the Body Keeps Score and and things along those lines. Um, there's a, a book called Life Unlocked that talks about fear on a really interesting level. Um, so I listen I listened to that and it was great. Bronson Pinchot narrates that one. Oh. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, but I do, I do also read a lot. Um, I loved Matt Norman's new book. It was really fun. It had like a big chill f- feel to it and oh, really movie. heartwarming. Yeah. It goes right back into the 70s thing. Like when you were talking about music, Mark was sitting here laughing at me that when we've talked about music as a group, like I've listed off every single one of those artists. So he's just like, oh, really? You <laughs> <He> found somebody <laughs> else that likes what you do. That's amazing. <laughs> I think that one of the things that is timeless about um, singer-songwriters and you know different um, you know decades and and those genres of music is that it's simple, it's accessible, but the feelings are profound and universal. And you know, of course, we all love it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We all go through those life stages and those feelings. Well, you know, we've talked about how much we love the people we keep. So we highly recommend that listeners check out the people we keep by Alison Larkin. It has been a pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the first 50 pages. Thank you, John and Kelsey. I really appreciate it. It's great to get to talk with you. Yeah. Thank you so much.